Turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk chapter 1. We continue in our series through the prophecy or oracle of Habakkuk. We'll be looking this morning at verses 12 in chapter 1 through chapter 2 and verse 1. The title of our sermon this morning is Swallowing Up the Righteous. And our key words for our worshipers in training are character, evil, and righteous. Well, I had, a, um, I had a cavity filled and a crown put on this week at the dentist's office. And that's always a treat, isn't it? Very rarely do I ever go to the dentist because I'm feeling some kind of terrible pain and I have to go right away and get it taken care of. That does happen, no doubt, but it's rare. And when you... You know, when you go to a doctor, you generally go because there's something going on and you're sick or you're in pain, you're uncomfortable in some way. But when you go to the dentist, it's like this constant routine of going in every six months and seemingly every time you go, they say, okay, we'll see you back in six months. And then there's a pause and they say, oh, wait a second. Between now and then, we need another about $40,000 from you. So um, can you come back in, in two weeks so I can put you through all kinds of pain? And I always wonder, what in the world? I was perfectly fine before I came here, and now all of a sudden, you want all of my money. I brush, I floss, I come in for cleanings. What is going on? And you know, right before I get to the dentist, I'm good. And then I get there, no pain, no discomfort. I'm told if I don't do something right away, within three weeks, my face is going to fall off. And there are several things in our lives that are just that way, aren't there? We're just doing what we assume we're supposed to be doing, and, and the response that we get is not quite what we had expected. It seems like we've, we've turned something that was, seemed okay, or maybe it was bad, but whatever the response to that is, it seems like it's getting worse. It's not what we expected. Most of us have probably had some kind of medical situation where we thought, great, I'm going to get this procedure done, and then everything's going to be all better. But we forget about the time that comes after you get that procedure done. There's a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort, a lot of asking ourselves and anyone else, listen, why in the world did I do this? When I was a kid, there were some medicines that tasted so incredibly bad, I just preferred to be sick and to let it run its course knowing I would eventually get better instead of taking those. I didn't care that Vicks Vapor Rub was going to supposedly help me breathe well at night. If my mom wanted to rub that all over my chest and have me put a t-shirt on over it, it was not happening. Forget about it. I am 100% here and now. I feel much better all of a sudden. The medicine was in you threatening to do that. But this is life, isn't it? We have in our minds the way something is supposed to be and a way that we want to fix it, and it's not always to work out that way. When we get the solution that we weren't hoping for, we realize this is not what I had in mind. I didn't like the looks of things, uh, of where they're going in this situation. We've seen that thus far in our journey through Habakkuk. As the prophet appeals to the Lord to punish 
evildoers in Judah, those people, his own, his own countrymen who were opposing the poor, who were taking for themselves what wasn't theirs, who were even committing heinous acts of violence and sometimes even murder. And he asked God, why are you letting this happen? Why are you letting this go on? Where are you? Aren't you going to do something here? And then last week we saw God responding by saying, okay, yes, I'm going to do something but hold on to your seat and don't let go. Pay attention, be amazed, because I'm going to do something that you will not believe. I'm going to raise up the Chaldean army of the Babylonians to come and to destroy Judah. And let me tell you, those Chaldeans, they are wicked. And when they come, they are going to destroy everything. They are the worst of the worst. And I'm raising them up. I'm raising them up to come to Judah. And when they get there, they will murder. They will destroy. They will pillage. They will take people into slavery. They will burn. It's going to be ugly. You are going to be scared. And if you survive, you will be taken into captivity. And that is my just response to the evil that's going on around you. Oh, and yes, the Chaldeans are as evil as I say they are. They are guilty. They will be guilty in this instance as well, and justice uh, will come for them. They also will be punished for their actions. And, and, And we're sort of left hanging there with this idea that God was really going to bring justice for the sins of his covenant people through a ruthless and evil army that would run over them and crush them and take them away from his land that he had given to them. And so, this morning, we get back to Habakkuk's reply. How does he respond to all of this? And there's no doubt that he's thinking through all this, and he's thinking, wow, this is not what I bargained for when I went in to talk to the Lord. This is not at all what I had in mind when I was praying. And in some ways, I'm more confused about this now than I was then. He was left, in some ways, with a lot more questions than he had from the beginning. And we're going to see how he begins to work through the news that the Lord has just given to him. And, and the thing I want us to remember as we look at the text together in Habakkuk is that he is absolutely believing God. He's believing everything he hears from God. Remember the first week we, we started looking at this. We said that there are those people in Judah who were saying, don't worry about it. Everything's fine. We're God's people. Nothing's going to happen to us. But Judah believed God. He wasn't one of these false comforters. He believed God, and that made all of this all the more perplexing for him. And so he was left to wonder, isn't the medicine that the Lord is prescribing worse than the disease? But we have to note, too, that Habakkuk was a faithful man. Not only did he believe that what God said was true, but he believed that what God did was always right, even though he didn't understand it. He had questions. He hoped for answers, but he believed that God was right. So what can he do? How can he respond? Well, the first thing we see in verses 12 through 14 is that real hope is found in the truth of who God is. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. It says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. 
You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. Now, when we come up against circumstances in our lives that leave us broken and confused, where do we most often turn? It's probably different for all of us. We're all going to answer that question differently. We all have ways that we seek to cope with our circumstances. But in the end, if we're Christians, we should all eventually come to the same conclusion, that any real hope, any real sanctuary from all of the trials of life and the consequences of living in a fallen world are only found in true communion with God. And they're communicated by God in His Word for us. So Habakkuk is responding to what God has just told him, and it's as if he's just holding this bomb that God has dropped in his hands and it's ready to explode. What do I do with this? Where do I turn? I don't know what to do. I can't just just hold on to it. I can't throw it down and run away from it. That won't work. I I need to think about others, but I don't know what to do with this. So what does he do? He begins by rehearsing the truth that he knows about who God is. Everything he thought he knew about how God did what God does, what, why things that he does, why circumstances are the way they are and God is going to fix all of it, everything was confusing. You ever get one of those pieces of furniture in a box that you have to assemble at home? Don't you love those things? If so, if you do love those things, you are not right in the head. I can't tell you how many times... I've been working on something and everything is coming together nicely. I've banged my knuckles about 500 times because the tool they give you to do it isn't the right tool. But I get it going and I'm to step three, four and five and six and then like six hours later when I'm almost done, I realize, oh, back at step one. Uh, that board I was attached everything to is supposed to be turned the other direction. And so now I have to undo everything even though I spent 45 minutes just trying to line up that one hole to put a screw through. So in a small way, we've all been here. These things are not going the way we think they're supposed to go. And we get this this piece of information along the way. We've understood things are going well. Everything's fine. But then we get some information and it says everything's wrong. Everything's backwards. Everything's turned around in the way that you're thinking about all of it. And it tosses all of our ideas out in the air. I've got to back up now. I've got to start over. And so when Habakkuk begins to grapple with this reality of having to start over with his way of thinking, he has to go back to step one. Who is God? Who is God? And so there's two things he does here to find some footing. Two things help him find his feet in the midst of this ride through what God is revealing to him. The first is that he reflects on the eternality of God. Habakkuk asks his questions rhetorically. He says, are you not from everlasting? And he knows that's true. That's why he says it. Before all things, before anything ever was or is, God. In the beginning, God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. 
Psalm 90 in verse 2 says exactly what Habakkuk is saying. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So this is the first thing he reflects on after he gets the bomb dropped in his hands. Why? Okay, it's true. I can believe that God is eternal, that God is everlasting, but so what? How does that help me when I'm told that God is about to raise up an entire army of ruthless, evil villains to destroy me and my fellow countrymen? And you and I, what help does that bring to us when we think about our lives and our worlds are rocked in an instant when the doctor comes to you and says, I've received the results and it's cancer? Is your first instinct to think, God is everlasting, God is eternal? God is timeless. Why does that matter? It matters because if God isn't eternal, if God isn't from everlasting, if this truly isn't the nature of God, then there's something or someone that came before him. I hope you're tracking with that. In other words, if God isn't from everlasting, then something or someone else has to be Because something doesn't begin out of And that means that he always has been, and that means that he always is filled with assurance because I need something to anchor myself into when the wind and the waves are working against me, when everything's about to knock me off course. I need to be able to stay positioned. Some new self-help theory that someone wrote a a week ago or ten years ago or, or some philosophy that survived a thousand years. That's pocket change. That's nothing. I want an everlasting, never changing God that I can look to and say no matter what may come, I know that my God is there because he will be there. His purposes, and his purposes are being brought to pass. So while the news you get may rock your world a little bit, when the circumstances surrounding you may be absolutely the thing that brings you very, very low to the end of yourself, there's a great hope in this truth that our everlasting God has made it all a part of his plan since before it all began. And while you're shocked, and while you're shaken, and while you're surprised, and his purposes will stand, and they are good, and they are right, and they are wise, and they are all a part of his grand and perfect design. Well, the second thing Habakkuk reflects on is the character of God, and specifically the character of God in his covenant love. In verse 12, when Habakkuk says, O Lord, my God. He's using the covenant name of God, Yahweh, that special name that God gave to the people of Israel um, of himself. He's reflecting here on his covenant-keeping God. And it makes sense, doesn't it? We We have this army coming after us, and for all intents and purposes, it seems as though their way of handling things is going to be 
So how is it that I can rationalize all of this and think it's all just going to be okay? Because I know that my God is a covenant-keeping God. Do you know Deuteronomy 7.9? Every Christian should know Deuteronomy 7.9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love for a thousand generations. Habakkuk was a faithful, um, faithful man, and surely he knew Deuteronomy 7.9. And right here and right now, he's reflecting on this great truth that God keeps his covenant promises. And so we can depend on God to do so. He always has. He always will. And for the believer, what is that covenant promise? That covenant promise happens in this life. What comes against me? No matter who I am, no matter what my perfect righteousness of Christ who died on my behalf, I have life everlasting and I cannot be taken away from that. So when I face something that is sure to bring my life to a quick end, when I have a, a brush with death or when I'm told it's only a matter of days before all of it is coming to an end, I can say with the Apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Brothers and sisters, the fact that our God keeps his covenant promises means that what Christ did for the church, Christ did for all of the church. And that includes all who are truly in Jesus Christ. So you need not fear trials. You need not fear bad news. You need not fear the difficulties that lie ahead. You need not fear death because all that God is for you in Christ is secure forever. And friend, if you do not know Jesus Christ... I don't have any of him to offer you that will be of any hope or any solace in times of trouble and trial and suffering and discouragement. But in Christ, you have all that you need. In Christ, you have a great Savior who fulfilled his covenant obligations with the Father to live a perfect, law-fulfilling life and die a sinner's death on a cross to take upon himself the full penalty for sin, which is death. And he paid it for those who have faith in him. And in Christ we have freedom then from bondage to sin and to death because we're made able to obey God. Our, our very nature and character has changed when we are regenerated. We're made new creatures and we no longer live primarily for ourselves but to make much of God in all that we are and all that we do. And day by day we are made more like Christ. In Christ I don't have to worry about tomorrow. I don't have to worry about tomorrow because in Christ, grace I need for more and more than I could ever imagine for whatever comes to me. Moment by moment by moment, there is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace for every situation that arises. And so in Christ, I don't have to fear death because in Christ, when I pass from life, I pass into life eternal free from pain, free from suffering, free from evil, free from destruction, and most importantly, a pass in the presence of Almighty God. Are you in Christ? 
Dear friend, if you're not in Christ, I'm pleading with you to flee to Christ that you might have life because there is no other lasting hope. You and I will never get through the uncertainties of life if we do not put our hope in the nature and the character of God and the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need a foundation, a foundation that can handle anything, and that foundation, if it's going to handle everything that we have to walk through in this life, it needs to be everlasting, and it needs to be covenant-keeping. And as Habakkuk reflects on all of this, look how he responds. He says, we shall not die. We shall not die? Habakkuk, you have a ruthless relentless army coming. What are you talking about? Now this is really we're being given a glimpse into the progress of his faith. He doesn't have a weak faith, but he has a puzzled faith. He's puzzled. He's perplexed. And, and that's understandable. But we, we get to see him submitting to a new concept of the Lord's promises and purposes among the nations and particularly among his people. This is important for us to see this. If we're to get Habakkuk and what it means to apply prophecy to our lives, and this one specifically, we have to understand the critical importance of of a maturing, growing faith. Growing faith as we know more and more of the purposes of God. And trusting in the purposes of God, despite the confusing circumstances. And and that is exactly what Habakkuk is doing. And, And when you and I are faced with confusing circumstances, the least we can say is the Lord is growing my faith. And brothers and sisters, that's never a bad thing. It is never a bad thing. It's never a small thing. If we can't figure anything else about our circumstances, at least we know the Lord is growing my faith. But in order to get there, we need to be anchored in the truth. Because when we're tested, when we are is what's going to keep us from sinking. And it's what's going to keep us from cursing God and blaspheming and running away from Him. So Habakkuk goes on and he's rehearsing more of the truth. He's coming to terms with what God has said. You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. In other words, Habakkuk is saying to God, this is it. These are your purposes. This is what you have told me you're going to do. But, but then we, we see again that he's still baffled. He's still not understanding the whole picture here. What's true is true, but is it conflicting with what Habakkuk understands about God's nature and God's character? He asks him in verse 13. He's saying, God, you are holy, holy, holy. You cannot look at wrong. So why is it that you can use these depraved Chaldeans to carry out judgment on your own chosen people? Now, Habakkuk has moved on completely from his first line of questions. Remember, Those were all about the people in his nation, his fellow countrymen in Judah. But now he's saying, well, wait a minute. I think there needs to be some justice here. And and these guys in our nation, they're bad. But isn't the medicine, isn't your cure worse than the disease? Here's where he asks the question. God, is this really what's going to happen? 
Because who, who these guys are and, and when, they, when they roll through here, it's not just going to be the wicked ones who are taken down. It's going to be all of us. And while some of these people probably deserve what's coming, you're going to ha- also have them swallow up the righteous. He's stunned. He's shocked at what's coming. In verse 14, he's saying, we're being made by you into the likes of the fish of the sea and the crawling animals of the earth without a ruler. In other words, God, you created us to have dominion over these things, but with the Chaldeans coming at us in this way, we will be now like the fish. We will be like the beasts, and we will be ruled over by a new and ruthless master. Now that brings us to our second point this morning in verses 15 through 17. And that is that evil exists and often leaves us perplexed. Look at verse 15. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? So Habakkuk continues his imagery of the righteous being as a fish of the sea, and the Chaldeans are depicted as a fisherman who takes them by a hook and a net, and when he has them, he is happy. Now, this isn't like one of those fishing shows on TV where the guy brings the fish in the boat and kisses it on the mouth and takes a picture of it and puts it back into the water. What in the actual world is the point of fishing if you're not eating what you catch? That's like, hey, I poured you a glass of water. I'm going to put it back in the drain now so that we can replenish our water resources. You don't get to drink it. What is the point? No, the Chaldeans are not those kinds of guys. These are guys who are very serious about fishing. This is the guy in a loincloth by the side of the water with a spear ready to attack the first thing that he sees. And here's how he responds. Verse 15, he rejoices and is glad. He gets a big catch, and he's very glad about it. Brothers and sisters, Habakkuk is saying that they, the Chaldeans, are so evil that they delight. They rejoice in destroying their enemies. They delight in capturing. They delight in killing. This is completely contrary to the character of God. You know, in Ezekiel 18, verse 23, it says, the Lord says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? The Lord doesn't delight in the destruction of evil, of the evil one, of the evil doer, of the evil man. And Habakkuk knows this is true. So he inside himself, he just doesn't get it. What is going on here? Verse 16 shows that they're idolaters. They worship. They're instruments of war and destruction and humiliation. The man uses what he catches for his own gain. 
And then he empties his nets and he goes out after it once again and he keeps going and going and going, giving no regard for those who are slaughtered. He keeps getting after it without any concern whatsoever. Look at verse 17, mercilessly killing nations forever. Brothers and sisters, evil exists. And for Christians, it can be very, very confusing to us, just like it is here for our boy Habakkuk. Because here's the big question. Here's the thing that he's asking, and that's probably in your mind. If God is good, and God is righteous, and God is holy, and God is perfect, and does not sin, and does not tempt us to sin, and does not lead us into sin or temptation, how is it that he can say that he's raising up the Chaldeans to judge his people? What kind of sense does that make? It's an important question. It's a legitimate question. It's Habakkuk's question. From teaching us that the worst of all mankind, and even Satan, is firmly in the grip of God. It is all over the Bible. We see it here. We see it in Job. We see it in the death of Christ, among many other places. But God is in no way implicated in the wickedness of man. Because some people want to make this an impossible issue and say, well, either God is good and not in control of evil, or God himself is evil and is responsible for all the evil of the world. But this brings us back to our first point. Where do I need to start? I need to start with trusting the truth of who God is. God does not do any evil. And Habakkuk acknowledged verse 13. God does not want to see his enemies destroyed in the sense that he delights in it or takes pleasure in it. So what's going on? Well, there is a big area of theological study. It's worth your time. It's worth understanding the doctrine of divine concurrence. But here's the basic element that we need to understand. There's a tension here between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. It's a tight tension. It always needs to be held if we're going to be able to balance on the rope. If you're going to walk a tight rope, it has to be very tight because as soon as it sags on one side or the other, the whole thing collapses. Is God 100% sovereign over the affairs of man? Yes. Is man 100% responsible for his actions? Yes. Is God responsible for man's actions? No. Now here's the thing. Did God have to convince the Chaldeans to destroy Israel and the northern kingdom or Nineveh and soon Judah in the south? Did God have to send an angel of the Lord to their king and say, listen, I know you're all some, you know, you're easygoing good old boys and you just want to kick back and relax, but could you do the Lord a solid and bring your nation down to destroy this other nation? No. Psalm 37.12, the wicked plot against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. And in verse 32, the same psalm, the wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. That's in his heart. That's what he wants to do. Listen, God is not inciting evil men to do what's already in their hearts to do. They are wicked, they are evil, so of course they're okay with sweeping across nations and taking people captive and burning down cities. That's what's in their heart. That's what they desire. That's what they delight in. 
But instead, in these instances, like, like Judah and what Habakkuk is saying, in these instances, God is no longer restraining them. Instead of God holding them back, he lets them fulfill his purposes. And those purposes are directed. Remember, remember Job? Remember Job when Satan came before God and basically said, um, I'm looking for someone to torment. What does God say? Have you considered my servant Job? <laughs> Did God tor- torment Job? No. Did God, in a sense, raise up Satan to torment Job? In a sense, in the same way he did with the Chaldeans. But who was responsible for all of this? Satan. Because he did what he desired to do, which was already in the heart of the one who did it. And God simply kept him from refraining and pointed the direction. Now listen. I can't do this big, huge, significant, important question full justice in the short time we have, but, but I, I know you're getting at least a sense of how God works and uses evil for his good purposes and yet remains unstained from it. There's a significant tension, and we, like Habakkuk, we need more than anything to be humble and to worship. So look at our final point this morning in in chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. We must cultivate humility before the Lord. Notice in all of this, Habakkuk doesn't dictate to the Lord what he should do or how he should do it. But he says, I will sit down, and I will watch, and I will wait. And he's right to take this posture towards God. It's right that he would not try to reconcile in his own finite mind what he perceives to be some kind of contradiction between God's having elected Israel as the object of his special love and the destruction of Israel at the hands of the vicious Chaldeans under the orders of the Lord. He's not resorting to human wisdom like we so often want to do. But he's waiting on the Lord. He's remembering what he reminded himself. God is everlasting. God keeps covenant. God will make all of this right according to his purposes so I can trust in him. I'm going to wait and I'm going to see where all of this goes. He's watching for an answer that can only come from the Lord. Brothers and sisters, so often in the perplexing times of life and in difficult circumstances, we we tend to grow impatient. We tend to be unwilling to wait on the Lord. But a life of faithfulness, a life of trusting in the Lord, knowing that the Lord is with us, is a life where we know He's sustaining us and He's keeping us and He's watching over us. He's going to see us through. Patience and waiting on the Lord is an undervalued but a very precious Christian grace. You and I live in a world where we can have our food delivered to us in a matter of minutes. We can go to the store and buy all of our products, and if we can't find it there, we can have it delivered to our doorstep in 24 hours or less. You can fly from one country in the span of a day to another and we get information thrown at us constantly from every direction with everyone and everything competing for our attention. 
And so everything is always moving and always fast-paced and always right before us, and we want it now. And it's like the badge of honor that most of us wear. How's it going? How are you today? What do we all say? Busy. I'm busy. And then we respond, oh, yeah, tell me about it. I'm busy too. And in our culture, we think that's like a great thing. We're like competing for who's more busy. What would we think of someone who said, well, I'm doing okay. I'm patiently waiting on the Lord. So I'm spending a lot of my time praying and meditating on God's word and waiting to see what he's going to do. All right, bro, that's great, but what, what are you going to do in the meantime? What are you doing? Well, I'm waiting on the Lord. I'm patiently waiting on the Lord. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying taking responsibility and taking action is unnecessary or inappropriate all the time. God certainly requires us to move and do things, but that is not our problem. You and I undervalue quiet and stillness in our Christian lives. We undervalue the blessing of being humbled by the fact that God doesn't work on our timeline. And that time in between what he's doing now and what he's going to do in the future is actually for our good. To grow us, to be more faithful, and to be humble. You know, as painful as it can be, it is good when the Lord brings us to the end of ourselves. Because it's only there that we can truly embrace the reality that we cannot do anything apart from Christ. I brought nothing to the table, not my works, not my supposed righteousness, not my good looks, as stunning as they are, I know. Not my gifts, not my talents, not my ingenuity, not my intellect. None of that comes to the table. None of it, nothing in this life, nothing that I'm clinging to apart from Christ is anything in terms of finding hope or peace or assurance. I need only to cling to Christ who is my all in all. And so many times when we are tossed around and turned upside down, the best response is to say, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and I will wait and I will watch because I know the Lord is doing something. I don't get it. I don't know what or how or even why, but I know that he is everlasting. I know that he is faithful. I know that he is covenant-keeping as my God and it will be far greater than anything I could ever hope or imagine. And so, brothers and sisters, what is our posture before the Lord? Is it humility? Is it a full reliance on the sovereign, gracious hand of God? In the quiet moments, as we station ourselves on the tower in humble patience, our quiet prayer must always be, He must increase, but I must decrease. Less of me, O Lord, less of me, and more of Christ. That's the prayer of the saint as we wait on our God.